episode 44 of the Swamp Flix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lomboss. This, of course, is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flix, mm-hmm. and we are recording once again in Brittany's apartment in Pigeontown, New Orleans. <laughs> Oof. Brittany, it's been two holidays since I've seen you. It's been Halloween and Thanksgiving. Yes. So it's been a busy month. There was also yes, no Kaz was last weekend. How did that go? Pretty good. I, I lowered the prices of our zines and CC made buttons of like our illustrations. Those buttons are, I saw a pic, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So we, we ended up selling more zines and making more money, oh, uh, cool. which was good. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was probably the best way that could have turned out. I might do one more zine selling thing in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm kind of a little iffy on that right now. But uh, also, I kind of want to start like an online store and sell those like from the website because we have like no income at all. <laughs> <laughs> After like three like years that. of blogging, we should probably do something to make a little money back for like hosting fees and like servers and stuff. You know, like next year, new year, new me. I want to get more creative. Yeah. Like, could I make like a hand painted T-shirt? You can do whatever Anything. you want. <laughs> We could paint rocks with, like, the Swamp Flicks alligator on it. My idea for the website was just, like, if, as long as it's vaguely movie-related, like, right. anything goes. Nice. So, okay. I think t-shirts and wearable items are Stuff in like the that. near future. I like to have a new project for every year, so right. some kind of, like, physical merch would be cool. Like a tote bag. People love fucking tote bags. Yeah. More than the t-shirts, maybe. I don't know. We're gonna have to have, like, a brainstorming session. Right. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> we of course, we've been busy with that kind of stuff. What have you been watching in this uh, busy season? Petals on the Wind is the sequel to Flowers in the Attic. What? So, <laughs> Lifetime redid Flowers in the Attic in 2014. And like a few months later, boom, here's a sequel, Petals on the Wind. And I believe they did like two other movies the next year. Wow. All within the series, which is, you know, the series is based on um, a V.C. Andrews bestseller. I don't know much. I don't read V.C. Andrews that much. I probably should, but my mom was a big fan. And I just remember, like, there's millions of books in one series. Like, it's just never ending. So I'm sure they can keep going with these dolling ganger That's the name of the family? Mm -hmm. But um, Petals on the Wind is kind of focuses on the dolling ganger children after they escape Foxworth Hall. So I know, like, Flowers in the Attic, the concept is, you know... This woman has children for her uncle, and they're married, and then they go back after he dies to the to Foxworth Hall, which is this huge mansion where you know she grew up, and her parents pretty much disown her because she had all these sinful kids from this like incestuous relationship. So they lock the kids up in the attic, and then there's weird incest stuff that goes down up there. Right. Well, it gets <laughs> super weird in yeah. Petals in the Fucking Wind. Um, it's sort of after they escape from the attic, <laughs> um, they get adopted by this wealthy gentleman. He raises them, and then he dies. And Kathy, who's the oldest daughter. She's really into ballet and dance, and she goes off to live in New York with this other ballerina who's, like, really, like, physically and verbally abusive towards her. And her brother, Christopher, he's in med school, and he kind of develops a relationship with this, you know, really high-empowered doctor's daughter, and he's gotten hots for his sister, so it's never... They're never really truly in love with the other people they're with. They're all still kind of in it with each other. So Carrie is the youngest and her twin brother, Corey was the, a little boy that died in the attic. Oh yeah. He got poisoned by a cookie. So, (laughs) so she's in school. She's a little younger. She's like the youngest of the bunch. And then she ends up like falling in love and getting married. And then 
they're having her wedding. So they go to find Corinne, who is the mother, played by Heather Graham. Oh, nice. Very cool. I haven't seen her in forever. She looks the same. It's super weird. It's like she does not look like she could be a mother. So why it's really she weird in, like, Paul Thomas Anderson movies or something? Like, what, why is she in these she, Lifetime she's sequels? She's busy with these incestuous Lifetime films <laughs> okay. right now. I shouldn't step on her, uh, her vibe, you know? <laughs> so she's, like, completely forgot, not forgotten her children, but she's cut them off. She's like, those aren't my kids. Like, you know, she doesn't have any contact with them. She's gotten remarried. She has this new life. She's taking over Foxworth Hall because her mother, played by Ellen Bernstein, is like dying. And basically, while Carrie is planning her wedding, so she shows up at Foxworth Hall and she's like, Mama, I want you to come to my wedding. And then she looks at her and she's like, I don't know you. And then, I guess, spoiler alert? You can spoil this. I can spoil it? Okay, because no one should watch this. She eats a poison cookie and dies, just like Corey did. Just desserts. Just desserts. Um, So, you know, suicide by cookie. um, Because she can never get her mother's love. And so, in order to get revenge on their bitch of a mom, Kathy seduces the mother's husband and her goal is to get pregnant with his child (laughs) to get back at her mother it's very insane but yeah pedals in the wind don't watch it it's really really uncomfortable i was about to ask if you thought like maybe these like flower and addicts movies would be like worth a episode or something because i was very curious about the remake (laughs) I mean, apparently there's two other ones after this. That's crazy. So maybe we could do a whole episode on it. Is it worth that, though? It's so weird. I mean, I think... I know I said don't watch it, but... (laughs) I feel like everyone needs to know that it exists. You know how it's like, here's this piece of crap, but it's real, and you should see it to believe it. Maybe that's one to keep on the back burner. I I was curious about it. I really liked their recent remake of Mother May I Sleep With Danger with the lesbian vampires. Whoa. That was so fun. Did not know that. Oh, we need to watch that together. Yeah. I think this one was directed by James Franco, too. It was like about lesbian vampires. And Tori Spelling returned as the mother this time. Oh my god. Yeah. We'll we'll need to go back over that. Totally. But yeah, I'm trying to think of other stuff I've watched. Um, I finally watched Mother. One of my favorites of the year. Yeah. I know, like, everyone's been shitting so hard on this movie. So I kind of went in being like, oh god. And here's the thing. Jennifer Lawrence. I think she's awesome in the Hunger Games movies, but every time she's in a movie, other than that, I feel like she's like a girl trying to play a grown-up. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's me being an ass, but she just always seems like she's 15 years old playing the role of a 30-something-year-old woman. That's kind of um, her public persona, too, is she kind of acts like a bumbling teenager who doesn't know any better. The older she gets, maybe that's not as charming anymore. Uh, but I, maybe I, yeah maybe that's a... I do usually like her in movies though like mm-hmm. I liked the lifetime movie quality of joy more than most people did the movie's really bonkers oh, in a weird yeah. way is it Ali that like designed hangers uh, she designed like the miracle mop okay um, never mind <laughs> I remember trying to get you to watch that because it has like yeah. a soap opera kind of feel to it in a weird I, way I still never watched yeah it. <laughs> it's goofy okay yeah it was good I guess like the role that she played her mother role wasn't supposed was not supposed to be very like prominent so i think she did good with that like she's reacting to other people she wasn't very bold yeah i don't think she was supposed to be she shouts at people to stop doing stuff but she's completely ineffective right which it works with her yeah you know like i mean if jennifer lawrence told me to do anything i would just like turn the other way and be like whatever (laughs) 
But it was really good, and I know, like, everyone's been like, oh my god, this is the most controversial movie of the year. And, blah, 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 blah. and I mean, there are some parts that I was like, holy shit, which I'm not going to talk about because I think that's, like, the whole point of watching the movie is to get to this, like, insane ending. Yeah, the where third act's oh, full of shock value, just totally. absurdity. Right, I, the whole time I was just kind of, like, screaming, like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> it, just could, it just didn't stop. Um, but it was good, and I, and I know, like, we kind of talked about this before, how, like, a lot of people were saying that the message wasn't very, like, hidden. Everything yeah. was kind of, like, it wasn't, it didn't take a lot for you to, like, realize what, what Yeah, was there's, going like, on. two or three major metaphors in the movie, metaphors. and they're not very subtle. They right. kind of beats you over the head with them. There's a biblical one, there's an environmentalist one that yeah. are, like, very on the surface. It's kind of nice, though. I like that. I think subtlety is pretty overrated. Like, also... I think that the movie works on this other level, too, where it's kind of this absurdist comedy, where it's also, like, a horror film about, like, <laughs> having people in your house that won't leave and, like, keep touching your stuff. Right. We all have those family members. Yeah. That just don't know boundaries. So that was funny. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. Sometimes it's just nice to watch a movie and I don't have to think too much while you're watching it. Like, I like movies that make me think, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it's just nice to chill yeah. after a day of shit and just watch something. And just, like, not have to worry about it too much. <laughs> and then you, you get it. You don't have to, like, go and Google crap after. You just kind of... I like it. that your idea of a relaxing movie is Mother. <laughs> just, like... It was! Ratches it, was... it up intensity from, like, beginning to end. <laughs> it was it was really good. So, um, Mother and... What else? Um, oh, Sleepwalkers! Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So you and I happened to watch Sleepwalkers in the same week. No, did you watch it? It was playing on... I was at my parents' house for Thanksgiving... Mm-hmm. And they have DirecTV, and as, like, a little holiday weekend gift, like, DirecTV was like, here's HBO for free for a few days, okay. and Sleepwalkers was playing, so I kind of sat and watched that. Is that how you watched it? No, I paid $4 to rent oh, it fuck. on Amazon, uh, okay. because we have a guest host on the podcast in December, Ooh. and we're doing a Cat People episode. Have y'all gone to the Cat People house on Esplanade? No, you can visit it. It's a bed and breakfast. Oh, wow. Y'all should go spend oh, a night in the podcast yeah. there. Uh, so, yeah, I was preparing for okay. for a Cat People episode. Yeah. This is, like, the trash version of Cat People, but it was good. Yeah, I, I like the serendipity of us watching that the same week. It um, was so weird. Okay, so maybe you, now we can talk about this, that you've seen it. I don't want to go too far into it, because I do have to talk about it on the podcast later. But okay. I'll, I'll listen to you talk, though. Okay, I'm going to be really brief. Okay. So, it's so fast moving. Boy meets girl. Boy turns into cat. Tries to kill girl. Oh, here's the incest. He has, that. like, incestuous sex with his mother in the first right. scene. And then the movie it's gets crazier like, from there. Yeah. It's just nonstop. Because it moves so fast, it feels like a sh- very, very short movie. Yeah. But the hero... Clovis? Is Clovis the attack cat. Clovis, yeah, I love it because, like, real domestic cats save the day. Yeah. I mean, I will say this about Mother and Sleepwalkers. There are movies that do get shat on a lot, but I think <laughs> that they're my favorite kind of movie. It's where the movie starts off already insane, yeah. and then just gradually gets more and more bonkers as it goes along, and then just ends at its most, like, fever pitch, ridiculous point. Uh, and any movie that can, like, sort of outdo itself in zaniness like that, scene by scene, that leaves me with the best feeling at the end, where you walk off and you're like, that just got crazier and crazier. Yeah. So, I, they're not exactly comparable. Mother's a little more slickly made. Sleepwalkers feels like a 
cheap horror film from the early 90s like it definitely is Mm -hmm. but they are both my favorite kind of like plot structure so that's basically what i've been watching lately among other things but we would spend a whole podcast episode talking about that shit so what have you been watching lately i mean similarly there's a bunch of movies i could talk about because there's a lot of stuff being released this time of year that's super interesting but i feel like a lot of these have already been talked to death like ladybird Thor, The Disaster Artist. Oh, yeah. What else did I see? I saw the Justice League movie. Not really worth talking about. But I'm going to try to shout out the smaller ones. Uh, yes. Only one is from this year, and it's called The Untamed. Since about, I don't know, sometime this spring, I've been talking up We Are the Flesh, which is this, like, Mexican... You have been talking that up. Oh, it's so good. It's this, like, extreme horror from Mexico that's, like, sexually explicit so there's like unsimulated sex in it, which is very uncomfortable, and there's a lot of incest in that lately. I don't know why oh, we're on this incest yes. patch right now. We need to get away from. Yeah, it. we it's, need to move away it's from us. the incest. Uh, but we are the flesh is this like surrealist masterpiece, in my opinion, that reminds me a lot of like the exterminating angel and like old Bunuel pieces like that. The Untamed is another movie from Mexico that also has sexually explicit content. And it's another, like, weirdo genre film from kind of out of nowhere from this year. Uh, And in The Untamed, you basically open the film with this asteroid floating in space. And completely unexplained from there, you jump into this plot where there's this tentacled alien that lives in a barn. Yes. And the... Alien has tentacle sex with people, uh, oh my both God. male and it's female. Like a, a hentai. <laughs> it kind of is, but yeah, it's not. It's not Japanese. Okay. Uh, it's graphic. Yes. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> and it's such a um, strange story because you can't quite get a handle on the metaphor. Yeah. But basically, these people are in these unfulfilling and sometimes abusive romantic relationships, and those people who are like trying to break out of these like, you know, bad marriages or like. They're cheating on somebody with in like a gay secret gay relationship and like trying to keep it God, on the I down low. I love that. Uh, and that stuff's explicit as yes. well, which is good. Nice. And then those people who are like stuck in these sort of romantic ruts mm-hmm. feel compelled to visit this barn where this alien is living, and the alien basically fucks them in every hole with its tentacles. Um, <laughs> And it's one of those, like, creepy, slow-burn horror films. Like, you can make that same movie and have it be, like, shock-a-minute, gore-fest, and, like, all this Uh other stuff. But instead, it's one of those, like, weird, slow-burn horror movies from the past few years. And you sort of, like, dwell in these, like, awful romantic relationships and trying to figure out what the alien has... It's kind of like in Hellraiser or in, like, Martyrs or something. Like, it's this extreme pleasure combined with this extreme pain of being with this, like, Like that little creature. I really like this movie a lot. Okay. I mean, I don't know if I could... The, the sex scenes aren't very long, but the images will stick with you. The, even though you've been talking about it, all, all I remember was a barn alien octopus fucking everybody pretty much yeah and i think like i would have to watch that quite a few times to get over <laughs> it you know and there's, like take anything else seriously there's one shot in this movie that's very much like a noah's ark i don't want to give away too much what's going Ooh. on but there's one shot involving a lot of different animals and in, in a single sequence okay and it is one of the most like stunning gorgeous <laughs> shots of the year this is so interesting. What's up with like Mexico and these badass movies coming out? I don't this know. Year? This was like a French thing a few years ago, like really? in the mid two thousands. There were a lot of extreme horror, like 
over the top gore, but I yeah. don't feel like they were ever this like sexually explicit. It always like blows my mind whenever you think of all the movies that are coming out in the U.S. and mm-hmm. you're like, we're just one fucking country, yeah, in this giant world, and there's all this stuff going on. Where it's kind of nice knowing <laughs> that like you'll never see everything. There's always something else. Yeah. And uh, speaking of like European horror and like horror from other countries, I did find this movie from 2008 called The Children. It's a British horror film. Uh, have you seen this? No. Okay, so you and I have, like, a shared love of, like, kids being in danger and, like, kids doing dangerous yes. stuff. And, like, just framing children as, like, an evil force in, in horror films. Uh, this one is a must-see for the holiday season. So it's a British film, and it's basically kind of about that feeling of, like, when you're trying to hold your shit together yeah. in these, like, tense holiday get-togethers. Like, these two families come together for Christmas, and the adults all have these, like, reasons why they have arguments with each other like they don't agree with each other's parenting styles or like there's some old family rivalry between two sisters or something there's a lot of tension nice but they're putting a nice face on it you know and they're like having a nice christmas time for the kids for the kids and the kids are such a loud disruptive force of chaos like just in their natural play that it makes everything so much more tense for no reason like they have to kind of force the kids like into the separate room to go play with their toys and so they can maintain peace and quiet and like have a drink, you know? You ever you ever have that like situation where you're like at a at a family gathering and like the children are just like making everything louder than it needs to be and like God, like no one in my family has had a kid. <laughs> I think I'm like the kid in the family. I'm like, so jealous. They just stopped, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh well, in this one, that chaos and that sort of like violent outburst of like children at play is made to be a like virus and the kids (laughs) eventually become straight up murderous as they like spread this like sickness to each other and they start killing all the adults one by one and they always frame it like it's an accident or they try to like frame the teen that happens to be nearby there's like this like gothy teen They're, they try to frame her for murdering people and Whoa. there's all these like weird sculptures they make out of kids toys and it's a pretty cheap production uh for like a mid-2000s horror probably went straight Is to rental or uh it's it's got a similar vibe to village of the damned i don't know if it's i remember this movie where there's like a virus that makes kids kill people and their nails were black. But it might have been like a toxic sludge thing. As far as I know, this isn't a remake, but okay. it, it isn't like a traditional like British horror. Like, nice. uh, you know, they always, ha- always had those like chamber horrors where like everyone is maintained to this one bar while the world's ending around them and stuff. Right. This is all contained in this kind of this one house and like okay. the woods behind it. Uh, and the children are sort of like framed as this natural force that's turned evil and is like killing all the adults one by one. Nice. And if, if you're going to watch a Christmas time horror film, there's always like a few that make the rounds like silent night, deadly night or uh, right. black Christmas or right. whatever. Um, this one, I don't feel like I've heard the title tossed around that much. Uh, and I think it's, it's well worth a look, okay. uh, especially for a cheap movie. It does some weird psychedelic stuff with like the virus spreading. Nice. And it's always cool to see kids get hurt and kids hurt people right. in horror films to me. Cause of what happens. I mean, evil doesn't like pass up kids and just be like, Oh, they're too innocent. Like, mm-hmm. fuck, let's possess them. Make them do stupid shit. Right. And wow. like I said, I think it does have like a tie to a real life, like family get together during the holidays feeling, right. uh, which, You've blissfully uh, surpassed in your, like, own life, which I'm very jealous of. Pretty amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, today, we're not going to be talking about children. We're going to be talking about rock and roll. (laughs) We're watching a bunch of, like, rock and roll movies. Yes. Uh, And this sort of came about because 
your selection for movie of the month for November was this movie where Bob Dylan plays this like badass rock and roller in leather. Right, but little did we know, the real rock star was hidden in the background yeah. the entire time. So for the episode today, we're going to talk about uh, a man who plays a drummer in that Bob Dylan movie. Yes. And we're also going to be talking about a movie that the Bob Dylan movie reminded me of a lot, just in the way it was structured. Every movie that we were talking about today has a lot of like very classic like eighties like dad rock vibes to it, I think. Yes, it's all good. All it's good all stuff. great. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. I'm so excited. Alright. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. You don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hope maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. You could be different from all the other girls. Bitches on drugs. Suckers! 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 Be yourselves. These guys laugh at you. They've got such big plans for the world, but they don't include us. So what does that make you? Just another girl lining up to die. Now it's time for our regular Movie the Minute segment. This is where our hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Um, and like I said, Brittany had selected a movie where Bob Dylan plays like tough rock and roller in the 80s, yeah. super unconvincingly, uh, for our <laughs> Movie of the Month. And if you haven't never read our Movie of the Month selections, they're basically longer versions of these quick uh, recommendation segments, except there's more people talking about the movies. Right. And when we were watching the Bob Dylan movie, what struck me about the plot structure is that basically him and Rupert Everett are in this like love triangle with a young ingenue who's trying to get uh, into rock and roll herself as like a singer songwriter, and they act as these like, kind of like gatekeepers to mm-hmm. rock and roll, where they they basically act like these elder statesmen who like know everything and treat her like a little kid almost, like oh you don't know. What the business is really like. We've been there. Right. Uh, so they're these kind of gatekeepers, these like macho gatekeepers to the rock and roll as like a culture, which reminded me a lot of a movie I'd watched earlier this year for the first time called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. This is a 1982 film uh, starring a young Diane Lane and a young Laura Dern in a punk band. It's a three piece. They are three girls who, after three quick practices, somehow land a gig as an opening act on tour for these two punk bands. Um, one is an older glam rock group with some ex-members of the Tubes in it. Yes. And another... Love the Tubes. One of the guys from uh, Xanadu, because I guess yeah. the Tubes are in that. When they're... The um, the scene in Xanadu where there's like a new rock versus disco kind of like music Oh god, that playoff. sequence is such a mess. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's them. <laughs> yeah. And then also the other band is fronted by Ray Winstone, who is like a real actor, and mm-hmm. also ex-members of the clash in sex pistols so there's like a real punk authenticity to the film yeah. uh it's got this kind of ramshackle rock and roll feel the girls go on tour with these two opening bands and they gain more notoriety than the older men who are like trying to gatekeep and be like oh you're not actual right. rock and rollers you don't know what you're doing but through just sort of like sneering attitude and these like super sexed up um new wave outfits they wear even though they're all underage girls they like Wear these like scantily clad, right. like, 
pantyhose and panties and uh, really garish makeup. And uh, they ca- call themselves skunks and yeah. dye their hair with a huge stripe down the middle and like shave the sides of their heads. They look really striking uh, for an early 80s rock group. Right. And basically the trajectory of the film is that the girls get way more famous than they should, like super fast. Basically because they're really good at manipulating this television program that's documenting them. And more and more girls start coming out inspired by them and wearing their outfits. And it sets them up for this big fall. Like, they're not ready for the level of success considering that they only have, like, a couple songs and barely had their shit together before they started touring. Right. Uh, So there's a little bit of a tragedy to it, but also they're inspiring all these, like, girls to take up this rock and roll attitude that is usually reserved for boys and sort of invade mm-hmm. this like macho space. Right. So obviously this is your first time watching yes. Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. What did you think about it? I really, really liked it. And I was kind of blown away that I've never, I've never heard of it. I've never seen anything from it. Like nothing looked familiar and nothing sounded familiar when I was watching this movie. And I just couldn't believe that. Because, I mean, I see some of, like, the weirdest and stupidest shit that came out of the 80s and just didn't know this existed. Cannot believe Laura Dern and Diane Lane are in here. And, like, Laura Dern's, like, 13 years old. They're tiny babies in this. But Laura Dern looks like her now. Like, she just looks so mature. Diane Lane looks like a baby, though. You know, the 80s doesn't feel that long ago. No, but... but Laura Dern is in, like... The upcoming Star Wars movie, and she looks very like matronly in that. And uh, Diane Lane's like biggest role recently is playing Superman's mother mm-hmm. uh, in the DCEU movies, uh, which are terrible. But she looks like you know kind of an older woman right. in these. And like it's crazy that something that just like a few decades ago they look like little, such little punk kids. Yeah, yeah. I really, really liked it though. I love the music. Yeah, like the songs, even like the. Um, I'm a waste of time. Like, just this real monotone, like, shitty, whatever. It, it was really cool. Are you familiar with the Shags? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, it's like this group that's supposed to be, like, the worst music ever made, uh-huh. supposedly. But this dad basically, like emotionally abused his daughters into starting oh, this band that they did not want to be in. Is this a movie? or is No, it's real? a real real story. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, and they had that same kind of atonal singing style, except that in this movie, The Stains, which is the, the band that the three girls are in, has more of a political message in their music, which is basically right. like that since they're young, poor kids from this industrial town, they have nothing going on in their lives right. and they're wastes of time. I just loved, like, um, well, Diane Lane's character, Carmen, her attitude. When things got really, really exciting, she was just kind of like, yeah, what the fuck ever, I don't care. Just very this, like, nonchalant attitude, like, the whole time. And, I mean, you kind of feel for her because, I mean, she lost her mother, like, really tragically. And they're all related. Like, um, her sister, I can't even think of her name, but her sister's, um, like, a guitarist. And yeah. then her cousin, who's played by Laura Dern, Peg, like, her name's, like, Jessica. But she's like, I want to be Peg. Yeah. She changes her name. So cool. So they're all related. Um, and they all, like, lost, like, a huge member of their family. So they all kind of... It's kind of nice how they get through a tragedy together. And there's this, like, really, really, like, emotional part where... Laura Dern's mother is being interviewed by a t- the TV station. Is like, what do you think about like your niece and your daughter's like success and the stains? And she just gets really emotional. She's like, you know, I'm glad to see them having fun and blah blah. Like, she was like so proud of them yeah. instead of being like a shithead parent. Is like, well, fuck those kids and blah blah. So that was it. Was like really nice. Um, where you didn't expect it to be like that. Yeah. What What I really I like that. about that transformation though, from them being these like go nowhere kids, uh, uh-huh. who's like 
parents have no plans for them really right to this like famous rock stars is that is like pretty authentically punk like when a kid becomes like punk or whatever all they're really doing is like drastically changing their appearance right and changing their names that's like two of the first things you do <laughs> and the way that the movie starts off is almost like this dateline tv episode where like they're being interviewed about how they have no jobs and this like family member just die like what are you gonna do with your life mm-hmm. and they basically have no plans and they're in this like shithole industrial town right uh and it just felt so real like that's how punk bands get started these kids are just bored right. and want to like drastically change how they look and who they are right uh, like they go through something traumatic and yeah. they try to reinvent themselves so that was it was really cool seeing it from it, almost like this it's like a documentary like a yeah. fake documentary and i like that they don't necessarily get better at their music like by the end they do but it's not like they we are the professionals such a good song oh it's a great song but With... it's like authentically punk though it's not like yeah it's not like josie and the pussycats or something where they're like suddenly like True. super slickly recorded uh like mall <laughs> punk or something like they right they keep that like sort of Pretty ramshackle. yeah <laughs> yeah um i love like the en- i think the ending was so cool where, you know, they kind of become sellouts in a way mm-hmm. and, you know, they're selling skunk stuffed animals at their shows and posters and, you know, hair dye and then I guess they kind of realize, like, what they've, what they're turning into and then right where Corinne's just like, you know, fuck, like, everyone hates us. She, like, turns around and there's, like, a huge, like, following people that are still dressed like her mm-hmm. And then it just moves to them being, like, on MTV looking like they're fucking 30 with this really intense music video. Yeah, so basically what happened was the movie had this, like, really troubled production history. The lady who wrote it, Nancy Dowd, had a lot of onset arguments with the director, Lou Adler, who was a real music industry douchebag, uh-huh. uh, and Paramount, all these, like, macho male executives, were basically giving her shit the way that men are giving women shit in the movie. Gotcha. Uh, and the movie had this really long delayed release because they didn't know what to do with it oh so they were really older in the end so what happened was mtv happened like after they wrapped up and the movie was in post-production forever mtv became this huge thing so that music videos were you know like a new art form that was like suddenly a viable way to sell bands right uh and they decided like oh we can capitalize on this if we release the movie soon and they recorded a music video of the girl's who all of a sudden stop being children and because it's filmed like five years later, like Laura Dern suddenly looks like Laura Dern instead of like a baby version right. of herself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, something else that I really liked was how their big hit that kind of put them on the map, they stole. Yeah, they just steal it. <laughs> um, they lied. Well, Corinne lied about being in a relationship with like the dead drummer of the metal corpses. And then that made people like get really, you know, interested in like, who is this girl? What band is she in? So, like, kind of how they manipulated things in their favor is awesome. And people do it all the fucking time. But it's just kind of like, just because they're girls doing it, they're supposed to be, like, shitty bitches. Yeah. You know, where it's... I mean, people do that shit all the fucking time. They're also screwing over men who are already shitty to them. Right. It's like this, like, really good concise and even kind of innocent version of revenge like right. it's not like they're doing that it's just like terrible a mild stuff fuck you yeah. yeah yeah i just really like that and i think the idea of the movie where they're inspiring other girls to do that like don't let people rip you off that we don't put out we don't put out <laughs> and she's saying like oh you don't put out in that outfit because uh, oh, they're God. all dressed yeah it's such a bullshit uh <sighs> phrase 
But I love like how when they're at are they at like a mall mm-hmm. and like all these girls dressed like them are just like like flooding this like escalator and it's amazing. What was that movie that was like the Legend of Billie Jean? You remember yeah, that? Yeah, Legend and, of Billie Jean. And they all the kids like dress up like her wherever she goes across the Yeah, they the country. like cut their hair real short and they're like, I'm Billie Jean. Yeah, this is like the punk version of yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but basically in real life, this movie had that same kind of effect. They're trying to inspire other girls to sort of like come up and uh, stop letting themselves be screwed over by like older men and stuff. Right. And in real life, this movie didn't make much of a splash when it was first released in theaters. It was kind of a bomb, but it got picked up on like early HBO and used to play on TV all the time. And it actually inspired a lot of groups like Bikini Kill, Mm -hmm. a lot of those like early Riot Girl groups to start their own bands. And one of Bikini Kill's like main tenets as a group was like, we want to inspire other girls to pick up instruments and start their own bands. And that's why they were like really into like zines. Just and... like Corinne. Yeah, exactly. And this movie does have that ethos. It's not like, it's like the movie had a different message. Like that is the message of the film is they're trying to inspire other girls to start right. bands and like start a revolution. Doesn't she make like a, um, a comment where she's like being interviewed and she's like, I think every girl should get an electric guitar on her 16th birthday. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. That's so badass. <laughs> I cannot believe, like it's so weird that is fucking Diane Lane from like Unfaithful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just this like really clean cut blonde white woman. It's very crazy. I'm glad you liked it. I was a little worried because it's a little messy. It has the feeling of like drunk rock and rollers putting a movie together and there are plenty of movies like that. I remember that movie, Desperate Teenage Love Dolls, you gave me. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Like, that movie is a total mess in the way that this one kind of is. But that, I couldn't even pay attention to that. Like, this yeah. was entertaining. Yeah. Or just, it felt like somebody just got, like, 20 bucks and a camera and just went to town. And I love that. And it feels it really nice. authentic, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. There have been so many generations of people that know your music based on one movie. Just one movie. And that's the power that, that your performance had in that movie. Now how do you how do you how do you feel about something like that? You know what? The only thing I think you know when people probably when you interview people about movies, the first thing they say is, Oh god, it took so long. Oh, we had to do a million takes. Oh boy, people thought that sounds so... This literally was two hours of my life. I played with Tina Turner for 20 years. This was two hours and that is what people know. And I swear to you that we got there about maybe 8 o'clock. By 10 o'clock, we were back at the Holiday Inn having a party in Corey Haynes' room. <laughs> and for our feature conversation, we're going to be talking about a figure in rock and roll music that has been overlooked, but has a... For far too long. Until now. Now is his time to shine. Yeah. It's a guy who pops up in a few rock and roll movies, but is usually at the periphery, and then steals every scene he's in because he's yes. such a stunning like visual object. Uh <laughs> His name is Tim Capello, also known as Timmy Capello, and also known as the Sexy Sax Man from The Lost Boys in 1987. That's the Joel Schumacher vampire movie with both of the Corys in it yeah, and God. Kiefer Sutherland. Such and a fucking good movie. 
Alex Winter from uh, Bill and Ted. Yes. Ed Herman from Gilmore Girls. Diane Weist. And Diane Weist. Weist? Weist? I, don't I don't know, but... She's her. always someone's mom. Yeah. <laughs> She's such a nice lady. Yeah. Well, okay, The Lost Boys, as a vampire movie, has this sort of like MTV look to it. Right. And I know we were just talking about MTV with uh, The Fabulous Stains, but that really was like a defining aesthetic of the era. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you could chop up The Lost Boys... To look like eight hair metal videos. Like, you could chop that movie up into bits and have them be music videos for early MTV. Like, everything has that, like, fake studio lot feel to it. And everything's really slick. There's not even a lot of horror, except for, like, in a few different scenes where there's a few vampire attacks. But mostly it's just, like, this is what 80s MTV era horror looks like. And at the center of that, sort of defining what that look is, is this one scene set on a beach at a concert where a man who is wearing no shirt is playing the saxophone and thrusting his hips and singing I Still Believe. Yes. Uh, And that is Tim Capello. That's our boy. Yeah. Now, this scene in The Lost Boys really sums him up because, I mean, he is such a big sex symbol. In the beginning of his career, before he was in The Lost Boys, he performed with, like, you know, different musicians and things like that. But um, he performed with Carly Simon. And she would walk him on stage with a dog leash while he wore a leather thong. (laughs) Um, So that kind of tells you a little bit about him. And he always performs, like, mostly naked. Always. And if he's not in a thong, he wears it over his tight jeans. (laughs) Actually, he was also in a band he fronted called the Ken Dolls. They were the founders of Porn Pop. <laughs> um, and they were too sexual for CBGB. Wow. And they were kicked out. Thinking of all that, and then you see this, like, big, ripped, like, oiled up dude. It's, who, like, a, it's like a bodybuilder is, like, his type. Right. With a huge ponytail. Ponytail. And just, like, he wears, like, chain necklaces. Just lots of chains all well, over him. This is how Wikipedia describes him. He is notable for his muscular physique. His sexually provocative movements during performances, and his tendency to perform shirtless with his skin oiled and his hair in a ponytail. Uh, and from what I understand, he was like a junkie before he became a... In uh, his, yeah, in his early 20s, he was hard into drugs. And then when he was 25, he was just like, I'm stopping. And he did it. And a lot of bodybuilders are like that. Like, they use the routine of bodybuilding yeah. to, like, establish a new, like... Addiction, almost. Uh, yeah, yeah, but like something more health conscious, I guess. Right, yeah, no, Totally. Also, speaking of body oil, if anyone's interested, um, he has his own line called Sergio's Saxy Body Oil, and he sells it whenever he goes to all these like horror conventions and things like that, like at his table. I, d- I did notice that they hire him a lot to come out and play I Still Believe at horror He's conventions. He's got a really solid fan following mm-hmm. where he'll go to these horror conventions and people will go with their kids and their the kids will have like a little toy saxophone with a ponytail dressed up like him. I mean, people love this guy. Like, I've been following him on Facebook real hardcore for the past, like, I guess two months since we like started kind of talking about this. Yeah. Amazing. Like, this guy loves his fans and... He's actually, we should think about doing this. I know I'm like Timmy Capello word vomiting right now, (laughs) but he's doing this thing, which he recently started where you can like pay like, I think 50 bucks and he gives you a personalized video message. Yes. And he's really sweet. Like an interview. Nice man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We got to use a quote from it earlier, but in an interview where he was talking about how he like partied in Corey Haim's hotel room Uh while shooting the Lost Boys. They were trying to get him in the interview to be like, oh yeah, Corey Haim, he was crazy. 
he had a lot of problems. And this guy like won't say anything bad about yeah. him. He's like, oh no, he was a real sweetheart. He was a little charmer. Yeah. Like <laughs> And he, he has like just a really a genuinely he, good person. Yeah, he just seems really nice and he's always got this huge beaming smile. It's actually really weird in a few movies whenever they ask him to like be serious or like because he can't do it. No. He kind of reminds me of like how D Snyder is in movies. He, what movie did we watch recently with him in it where he was like at a bar? Oh, um. You made me watch it. The History of Future Folk. Right. Just like kind of just this like silly guy trying to be slightly serious in the background, mm-hmm. which, yeah, which I love. I'm so glad that we get to highlight this amazing man's career. Yeah. And this performance that people know him for. Like, right. if you Google his name, a lot of what shows up is GIFs from this movie. Right. And also people in Halloween costumes dressed as him from right. that movie. How long would you say he's in The Lost Boys for? A minute? Maybe. Maybe a minute? Maybe a full minute. But not like even... He just does like the chorus of like, I still believe. <laughs> and then that's it. <laughs> like he performed with Carly Simon. He performed with Bob Dylan. He performed with Tina Turner for like right. decades. Uh, Peter Gabriel. Yeah. I mean, he's done... He has, this man has such an insane fucking career, and it's, this is what he's known as. He's known for one minute in The Lost Boys, which you said took two hours to film, and that's, like, defined his whole career. (laughs) Right. But for a good reason. Yeah. Yeah, that was, God. He's so good. Like, this, this movie is so great. I think one of the reasons that people recognize him for that is because he does embody that, like, MTV-era horror that I was talking about earlier. Right. You see all of that in him instantly, and it's very <laughs> early in the film, and it kind of sets the tone. Like, a lot of the movie is, like, gawking at, like, punks on the boardwalk, or right. vampires in leather jackets that drive around on these little motorbikes. Totally. Uh, and he's just, like, all of that in one shot. And it's also because he's super macho, and the movie has this sort of, like, homoerotic tone to it, especially between Kiefer Sutherland and... This uh, kid who is basically being taken under his wing and converted into a vampire. Mm-hmm. Be true. The movie sets up a dichotomy between him and his brother, where his brother's like this young, innocent boy who's still like prepubescent and like angelic almost. Right. And like so moralistically pure. And this kid who's turning into a man through puberty and becomes this like sort of monster because of it. <laughs> so it's all about like brotherhood and like macho stuff and mm-hmm. like showing off. Uh, and, like, getting the girl and stuff like that. Getting the Jamie Gertz. <laughs> how, <laughs> Jesus. How many times have you seen this in your life? Because I've only seen it, like, maybe two or three oh, times. so many times. I even have, like, a, um, a David action figure. Oh, really? Yeah. With his little bottle of blood. And you can pull his head off and you can put the scary vampire face <laughs> on. And you could put his regular, like, not-so-scary vampire face on. Oh, God, and I hate making such a bold statement, but this might be the best vampire movie ever. I mean, it's not my favorite, but... It's so, it's just so good at, like, blending in humor with a little bit of horror and a lot of sexuality. And it's just, it's so entertaining uh, without being overly cheesy, which it could easily do, especially as an 80s vampire movie. It's just so, there's nothing like it that I could even think of comparing it to. It is its own thing. Yeah, like... Uh, and I know they tried doing uh, two sequels in the early and mid two like or uh, mid two thousands. Fuck, like ten years ago they tried <laughs> to do a, like two of them with Corey Feldman. I mean, this guy's like hard up for cash, like no one's business. He's got a really sad last couple of years. I feel oh. super bad watching him spiral out like that. Corey's but... Angels. Yeah. Oh God. It's really sad. 
Um, yeah, I think they actually did a show at, like, Southport Music Hall right over there. So that kind of tells you where he's at in his life. But um, I never saw the other two, but just this is just such a... When I started really getting into movies, this was one of the first movies that I just remember being like, I fucking love this. I want to see more like it. And it's, it really got me into, like, 80s movies. It's super highly stylized in that way. Like, it looks uh-huh. so 80s in, in such a slick kind of way. It's just, I love the look of the vampires, where they're sort of like, punk, but not too punk. It's a little New gothy. Wave, not too wave. There's nothing that they fit into. Bauhaus a little bit? Remember that guy? But not even that much. <laughs> yeah. <like> Peter Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's... But still, it's like they're their own thing. Like, they have, like, this long feathered hair to where it's not hair metal hair. It's close, but it's not. And they have the cool, like, 80s earring and these, like, huge, like, trench coats and just this really cool look. Ah, vampires are awesome and (laughs) they should all look like this. It's so awesome. I love it. There's a lot of vampire action in the movie, though. Like, I can name, like, maybe three scenes where there's, like, vampire horror. It's just more about, like, the sexy of like these eternal beings that are like eternally young and like stalking the yeah. night and stuff. There aren't a lot of like hardcore vampire scenes, but all those shots where they're like swooping from mm-hmm. the sky to attack like the cop or they pull like the roof off of this vehicle. Like all of those kinds of shots are cool or like whenever they're hanging from the bridge and they just let themselves <laughs> go. Which is kind of like a um, literalization of like, would you jump off a bridge if your friends jumped first? Only they're vampires. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Also, this let's talk about the soundtrack for a hot second. Okay. Amazing. I have one bone to pick with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I might get really mad. Yeah. But you actually um, gave me the cassette tape, mm-hmm. and I've been, like, living for it lately. Like, since, you know, watching this movie again, and now that I have, like, the cassette tape, that weird, like, cry little sister. That was the song I oh, had a bone to pick with. <laughs> so creepy, but it's, like, so, like, enchanting at the same time. Well, that's the big lovemaking scene between the older brother and Jamie Gertz. Yeah. Michael and Star. Uh, and when they fuck, the camera, like, flies through the sky. <laughs> and this and song... <laughs> the lyrics are like, cry little sister, come to your brother, which I know we said that we need to stop talking about incest so much, but like right. that song is like this like really weird incest romance is it number. Is like incest romance or is it like, as in, you know, I mean, George Michael, it's like about father figure for a second. <laughs> yeah, that's creepy too. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, it is creepy, but it's not supposed to be about his dad. Yeah. It's supposed to be like how he wants to like be like this rock for this person which maybe that's what's i don't i'm not gonna defend the song it's weird but i think that's what makes it enchanting i think it's hilarious and when you said the movie's not cheesy i like that that's the kind of moment where i'm like okay that is cheesy to me and then um i know i mentioned it in that fiona article that i wrote Mm -hmm. the tim capello and fiona connection through the lost boys where fiona does backing vocals for the don't let the sun go down on me number um that roger daltrey did for this movie and then tim capello has his big hit i still believe also featured on the soundtrack and the two would join forces (laughs) in hearts of fire just a few months later like one second before we get into that let me ask you a personal question what is your dog's name? Her name's Anuk. What's the name of the kid's dog in this movie? Nanook. Nanook. And let me tell you something. So I named my dog Anuk from the movie Shokola. And when I got her, the first thing my dad did was like, come here, Nanook. And I'm like, fuck. It's like everyone in my family calls her Nanook. Or... Because of the Lost Boys? I don't know. <laughs> but so every time I watch this movie, I'm like, fuck. And then also like Nookie. 
And I'm like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's either Nunhook and Nookie, my poor angel baby. She's Her name been is smeared Nunhook. by a limp biscuit. <laughs> I did it all, all right. for a Nookie. I am very sorry I ruined your beautiful transition earlier, though, but I had to, like, clear no, up this dog issue. Oh, God, there's another dog thing, speaking of the nook, that I totally forgot about. We have a little New Orleans nod, because Sam is in the bathtub singing that Clarence Frogman uh, Henry yeah. song, and he's from the West Bank, um, yeah. I believe. So yeah. that was kind of nice. That was cool. <laughs> and the nook kind of saves him from his, like, vampire <laughs> asshole brother. So good. I love that dog, but yeah. Well, like you said earlier, the same year... Uh, Tim Capello's other sort of big movie moment, I think. This is one of the, his bigger roles. Uh, he plays a <laughs> drummer for Fiona, is the real-life singer's name. Fiona yes. Flanagan. Yes. Who was kind of like a VH1-era rocker that like never really stuck around. Poor like, heart. Yeah. <laughs> How many albums did she have? Like Maybe three like kind of big ones? She had her first one, I think, was like Fiona, her self-titled, and then Beyond the Pale, and then another one... Maybe five altogether? Wow, that's a lot. It's, it's yeah. a lot of albums and a lot of music videos for someone most people have not heard of. She had a buttload of music videos until, like, I think she had an album in 93, and they didn't even do, like, one video for it. And yeah. I think after that, it was just kind of like, eh, we're done. Well, they did make one major push to sell her, which was Hearts of Fire, like you mentioned earlier. Right. Same year as The Lost Boys, and... This is the movie that we've been talking about on the website all month. Yes. Uh, Bob Dylan and Rupert Everett are in this love triangle <laughs> with this poor ingenue who does not deserve to be, like, shat on by these older men. And mostly in that conversation, we were all just laughing in Bob Dylan's face for being, like, a tough guy with a leather jacket and an earring who was acting, like, 20 years older than he really was. Like, the, the movie was written for Mick Jagger. <laughs> He was acting 20 years older, trying to act 20 years younger at the same time. Yeah. And it is weird. There's the classic scene where, like, the rock and roller smashes up the hotel room. (laughs) And he's so lazy and sad about it. Like, he kind of smashes this chair in anger, and it's, like, such a pathetic... It reminds me of Paul Rudd, like, slamming his uh, cafeteria tray in Wet Hot American Summer. He's just, like, so lazy about it. And, I don't know, just, like, the way he, like, winks at the camera or, like mumbles these, like, lazy come-ons to this, like, poor younger girl who's, like, 20 years his junior. It's really easy to make fun of Bob Dylan in this movie, and, like, that's the fun of watching Hearts of Fire, I think. Yeah. And he's a chicken farmer, too. And he's a chicken farmer. (laughs) But Fiona is actually, like, a pretty good actress. Like, she reminds me of Gillian Jacobs a little bit. Like, she's, like, kind of husky, like, a little hurt feeling, but she's, like, excited about the world still. Yeah. And... Her drummer in the movie is Bob Dylan's real-life drummer, Tim Capello, who (laughs) is introduced in the film at one of their first practices as a band, playing like Animal in the Muppets. Like, he just goes on way too long and way too loud, and uh, Bob Dylan tells him, uh, Hey, Nico, this ain't World War III, maybe lighten up. Which, first of all, it's amazing that he has a name, because I don't think in many of these movies that he gets named characters. Sex man. We watched this movie together for movie of the month, and you were just like, whoa, Turbo's back. Like, you're like, oh, it's like Triple H looking guy. Yeah. He's just like freaking beating the fuck out of these drums. And like the whole time in here, see, in The Lost Boys, Timmy C is wearing like chains, but in here he's wearing like rhinestone like costume jewelry. Yeah, it's like ball gown it's, jewelry. Yes, ball gown jewelry. So he kind of makes a little change. Still tough as nails though. Actually, I think in this one he gets to wear like every one of his 
like sort of signature looks except for his g-string um because <laughs> in, in some concerts he's wearing bike chain necklace uh-huh. sometimes he's shirtless sometimes he's in tank tops he wears a dog collar at some point yeah uh, he has matching earrings for the ball ground jewelry which is kind of nice uh-huh because there is a lot of concert concert footage in this movie because this is like a rock and roll film yeah uh, and that's why it reminded me of like the fabulous stains as well is because it's like a road trip movie where right. you watch this young woman like come into her own on stage and he is not a very strong character in the film but for a tim capello movie uh-huh. he is featured a lot yeah he gets a good amount of face time <laughs> like you were saying for a tim capello movie i mean you look at this guy and you're like he is just gonna like tear this drum set up really yeah but he doesn't you know, it just looks he has he looks like he has so much rage within him and he's like ready to like let it out. And he um he does like push ups real quick. Like they're um they're leaving a hotel or the airport or something, and there's all the paparazzi outside, and then all of a sudden he just breaks out into push ups. Well, that's the first time they land in America. Okay. And he lowers himself to the ground in a push up and kisses the ground and okay. he says, America! Right. Which is when I first realized that he's supposed to be like a Russian character or like an Eastern European character. And we just <laughs> did not he, have that information earlier. <laughs> because he had that one line. He doesn't really have lines. Well, like, except for that, America. Yeah, he says America <laughs> and he kisses the ground. And uh, when Bob Dylan tells him it's not World War Three, he laughs maniacally. He goes, ha, 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 ha. So that's pretty much all of his like dialogue in the film. <laughs> But yeah, like you said earlier, I kept calling him Turbo because I didn't know his real name. <laughs> but it fit very well. Because he, he looks like a pro wrestler or like yeah. a gla- American Gladiator or something. We're watching it, and this is what sparked the whole idea for this podcast. I was like, God, this guy looks so fucking familiar. And then I googled him, and the first thing that came up was Sexy Sax Man. And then I'm like, holy shit. And then we delved into this like rabbit hole of Tim <laughs> Capello. Yeah, and he is kind of scary. <laughs> like... <laughs> There's a scene where uh, they're performing for these, like, British punks, and they, like, yeah. flick cigarettes at him uh, because they're, like, they hate the music that Bob Dylan and Fiona are playing, and he charges the crowd, like, super mad. He's, like, very aggro. <laughs> and it's like, wow, if I was at a show and the drummer looked like that fucking dude and charged the crowd, I would shit my pants. Do you think they were trying to, like, make him into, like, this... I feel like there's this, like, stereotypical, like, Russian animalistic character in a lot of movies, and it's almost like they were trying to do it to him. Yeah, it it reminds me of, like, a Rocky villain or something. Except that he is, uh, you know, like a really sweet guy. Yeah, when you decided to look him up and we were just, like, looking at pictures and interviews with him and stuff, he's always super professional and super sweet, uh, which I really appreciate about him. And Hearts of Fire... Even though he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, he is, like, in the backgrounds of a lot of scenes, and you get to see him play and wears different costumes. It's a pretty good showcase of, like, what's interesting about him. So, in the list of things that are interesting in Hearts of Fire, it's probably, like, Bob Dylan pretending to be a rock and roller, like, probably the most interesting thing. Yes. Fiona as, like, a weird, like, lost cultural object. Probably the second most interesting thing about the movie. And then Tim Capello is pretty high on the list as well. Just cause right. He, he beats Rupert Everett 100%. Yeah. Well, Rupert Everett is basically playing this, like, uh, Human League type new wave guy. But in a very dopey way. Yeah. And also this movie came out in 87, so the, for them to make making fun of new wave just feels, like, way behind the times. <laughs> this movie should have never been made. No. And but it's written, I like it. It's written by Joe Esteraz, too, who, like, wrote Showgirls and, like, a bunch of other, like... <laughs> 
other gems. I think he wrote like Basic Instinct or oh, uh, cool. Fatal Attraction or those kinds of like. He's basically known for those like coked out like erotic thriller type movies. Like Hearts of Fire. <laughs> Why? Yeah. This movie's not sexy you know enough what? for him. No. You know what made him get really sexual with his movies? Timmy C. <laughs> I bet you he just got so inspired by that dude that he was like, dude, I need to get some more sex in these movies because that guy is where it's at. Okay, when he <laughs> loves showgirls. When Tim Capella performs, right? Yes. He plays like the sexy boy for people. Like, <laughs> I like the way that sounds. Well, <laughs> the I mean, like, sexy boy. It's like Carly Simon, like, drags right. him around. He's basically like a Chippendales dancer. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, when he'll play with. Tina Turner, she, like, grinds on him and, like, uses him as a prop while right. he's, like, playing instruments. Right. But do you, do you really think of him as, like, a sexual person? Because he doesn't seem like... Whenever I started, like, watching his interviews and, like, listening to him talk, it really, like, toned him down for me a little bit. Because at first I'm just, like, you know, it's a guy who doesn't really speak, who is ripped and oiled up and is just, like, thrusting with a saxophone covered in chains. You're like, okay, very intense, right? (laughs) And then you hear him talk, and he's just, like, you know, a nice, like, papa. You know, very, like, humble man who, like, believes in true love and is, you know, really, like, a big sweetheart. So you're just kind of like, okay, like... You know, and now, like, when I look at him, I don't, like, see that intense sexuality anymore. Yeah, I think... I just see, like, somebody trying to have fun. It might be the interviews, but I just see him as, like, almost like an asexual, like, being after a while. Like, I don't want to see him, like, be romantic with anyone. That would weird me out. Right. But him, like, performing basically like a stripper while playing... Right. A myriad of instruments. Like, as far as I know, he at least plays keyboard, drums, and saxophone, which is interesting. Right. He grew up in, like, I think in the, his household. I mean, he, he was born in, like, 55 or something. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he grew up with, like, that sort of, like, you know, 60s kind of music and, like, jazz. He really likes jazz a lot. He did mention that he was trying to... His attempt was to be as heavy metal as he could with a saxophone as possible. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really work out that much. So, it's just... As long as he has, like... A good, like, melody and a good beat. He's fine. Just, and he's got some good jazz roots. <laughs> well, speaking of trying to, like, make things sexy that, like, maybe aren't sexy. Yes. Uh, from 1989, Tim Capella was also in a movie called Tap. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that basically the tagline should have been, like, making tap dancing cool again. Uh, And it's basically trying to update tap dancing as an art form Mm -hmm. to make it palatable for an 80s audience. Right. A late 80s audience. Late 80s. Uh, And this stars three generations of tap dancing celebrities. One is Sammy Davis Jr. in his final screen role the year before he died. Gregory Hines, who got to start with like Mel Brooks and stuff. Bojangles. Yeah. And also, his, like, young protege, uh, Samian Glover, who was, like, still a child when this came out. Uh-huh. But by the time we were kids was, you know, tap dancing in, like, Coca-Cola commercials and was, like, super talented but really had no industry left to, like, show off. Right. The movie opens with Gregory Hines getting out of jail. Uh, it starts off kind of like the angry dancing scene in Footloose, you know, in mm-hmm. the warehouse. He's, like, dancing in his, like, jail cell just because right. he has, like, nothing better to do. Tapping it out. And he... 
taps himself into the real world and like the cheesy saxophones come in on the soundtrack and you basically watch him deal with the fact that tap dancing is no longer cool and he has to choose between the life of tap and the life of burglary whether he's gonna go back to petty crime or pursue like a career in a dying industry or in a dying art form he should have chosen being a burglar burglar yeah for sure (laughs) sure. (laughs) so you know, like, Sammy Davis Jr. is, like, the past of Tap. He, like, does this kind of ragtime thing right. where a bunch of other old-timers. And the old men dancing in this movie, that sequence is super impressive. Because they do not look nearly as limber as they are. And Sammy and Glover is, like, the future of Tap. There's another little kid who's, like, reading a comic book instead of taking his dance lessons. He's like, dance is for girls. Right. And Sammy and Glover, like, plays with the basketball and Taps and at the same time. It's actually Thrasher magazine? Yeah, okay, it's a skateboarder magazine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he shows off and shows them that Tap can be cool. And then Gregory Hines is supposed to be this sexy, tough badass who's like the present of Tap. With like baby deer eyeballs. Yeah, he's like <laughs> it's so weird. way too sweet to be like a criminal. <laughs> so yeah, the movie's not very convincing. It's really cheesy. The I- whole idea of it is kind of dumb. What's really cool is that Gregory Hines, his idol is Sammy Davis Jr., it's so cool that like seeing him work with someone that he basically worshipped and like really looked up to and his like last role was really cool and and Sammy and Glover was his real life student too so it's cool to see all three of them in one movie yeah they really like all look up to each other the plot of this movie is really weird and not very strong but if this is more of like if you're into tap dancing you'll fucking love this movie but not that I'm not into tap dancing. I just don't like... I mean, I'll watch, like, Fred Astaire every now and then and stuff yeah. like that. Like, I'm not... I don't hate it, but I'm just not, like, into it. So I wasn't really into it because of that. But I could see how somebody who's, like, got a passion for the tap will, like, fucking love this movie. Well, this kind of, like, jazzy tapping is almost like scatting or something. Like, it's very improvisational. There's no yeah. rhythm to it, almost. It's- Here's, like, the plan of the movie. You're saying that you're not into tap music. I'm not. Me neither. I don't get it. And the movie's whole idea is to convert people like us into thinking that tap is cool. It didn't work. The center of this plot to get us into tap music is Tim Capello. (laughs) The biggest speaking role he's ever had in his life. Totally. I'm sure his character was named in this one. I don't remember what it is. Harry or Henry. Yeah. His like dad owns this tap dancing club and he took over it. Which is insane. (laughs) Yeah. So, Tim Capello is basically tasked to update TAP to heathens <laughs> like us who do not understand the, the art form. And it comes across in two ways. And these are the most insane things about the movie, besides maybe the old men dancing. And the first way is at this construction site where Gregory Hines leads the entire club of people out into the world to hear the sounds of the street and tap to it. And Turbo Tim Capello also is there and brings out his band to play along with him. And they basically do like a stomp style rhythm section with the sounds of the streets and like construction sounds. And like people are doing backflips and it's it's so insane. Uh, It's super dangerous too. They're like (laughs) dancing on these like forklifts and like, yeah. So that is pretty nuts, but that's not nearly as insane as Sammy Davis Jr.'s plot to update Tap by adding electric pickups to Tap shoes so that they can be amplified along with Tim Capello's rock band and thus making it palatable to people like us. He wants to make Tap dancing rock and roll. He calls his shoes the Taps. 
like hooked up the taps. <laughs> He's got this and he also adds synthesizers to the taps so that when you tap, it doesn't sound like a percussive sound anymore. It goes wrong. It's so bad. It's absolutely insane. And I guess technically you could do it, but why would you? Like, it's not pleasant sounding. And Tim Capello is like at the center of that. Like, he hooks up the tap shoes. Yeah. He has the rock band. He has the venue. He makes it happen. Now, Brandon. Here's something. Can you think of something that leading men in the Lost Boys, Hearts of Fire, and Tap have in common? The leading men? Yeah. Like your lead male roles. You know, I would say Michael, um, Bob Dylan, and Max Washington. Besides like leather jackets, I got nothing. So, they all have a dangly left earring. Oh, you're so right. And guess who has a dangly left earring? Gregory Hines? Tim Capello. <laughs> so, did So, he? is he the secret lead of this movie? <laughs> because, yeah. So, you know, the whole thing of how Michael meets Star in the Lost Boys is, let me pierce the ear. Mm-hmm. Come to the cave, you know? And then Bob Dylan just has this, like, sickening, horrible, like, dangly earring that just... Oh, it's terrifying. It looks so funny when he winks, though. Right? <laughs> He's got the it it's, it's yeah. shines with his little eyeball wink. <laughs> and then Gregory Hines, when he, like, comes back and does, like, the whole, like, can't stop the rhythm, blah, 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 performance. Mm-hmm. He's got an earring. Wow. A dangly left earring. And it's like, Tim Capello has that. And they all have it. Wow. Right? <laughs> so do you think that it's just, like, they saw this, I mean, the people, whoever... I don't know whoever designs the actors. Shit, what kind of what the is costume that? designer? Costume designer. They probably saw this guy and they're like, "God, that guy looks so good with that yeah. earring, and he looks <laughs> tough as nails." And you know what? We're gonna make our leading men look like him. Well, but they fail. These are all like time. versions of late '80s rock and roll. So I don't know if that was. I know, but I can't think of. I was trying to think of other movies where you know your main guy had that, and it's like just these fucking three. Yeah, and they all got Timmy C in them. <laughs> I mean, you could m- probably make a stronger case if they were all shirtless and oiled. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, I fucking do a greasy Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, God. Bob Dylan's personality is already greasy enough in that movie. I'm glad he keeps his clothes on. He the- seems like he'd be very dry. <laughs> there is that scene where Fiona tries to get him to go skinny dipping and he refuses to take his clothes off. Right. And it's like everybody... He's probably really ashy. Yeah. <laughs> everybody breathes a sigh of relief in that moment. Like, <laughs> like oh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> So, okay, in Hearts of Fire, uh-huh. you get to see Tim Capello perform all these different concerts, and right. he has a named character. Even though he doesn't have lines, he's, like, on the screen a lot. Right. And there's even a really tense moment in Hearts of Fire where he watches someone commit suicide in the background, and he has to look super serious. <laughs> and in um, The Lost Boys, yeah. he's only on the screen for a minute, but he, you know, lights up the screen and steals the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think he, like, gets to show off and tap as much? Or is this kind of, like, a step down from those two for him? I think tap really reflects, like, his personality more. Where he's just, like, this nice guy trying to bring tap dance back into the scene. (laughs) You know, he's trying to do something real good. And it's not really... It doesn't sexualize him as much as the other movies do. But the first time you see him, it's like, Harry, bring the shoes or something like that. And I mean, they just focus on his ass so hard. He's like bending over to grab the tap shoes. And it's just like, it's like, oh God, there y'all go. <laughs> Using this poor man, like a piece of meat. 
And he embraces that. <laughs> like he, he's yeah, into it. Yeah, he's into showing off his body. He uh, worked hard for it. I don't blame him. He doesn't get to perform shirtless in this movie, but he does wear a lot of, like, mesh tank tops. and Yeah. Like, like those low-cut, the, the low muscle shirts. Hole muscle shirts, but with the... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe not his best, like, showing off, like, his rock and roll persona, but he does have more lines, and this is, like, the most actory he ever yes. gets. And he's good. Yeah, I he's thought he was very, very good. And it's kind of sad that he only has four credits on his IMDb as an actor, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the three that we already talked about, and <laughs> What's Love Got to Do With It from 1993. This is the Tina Turner movie based off of her autobiography that she wrote with Kurt Loder called I, I Tina. Tina, and it stars Angela Bassett and uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Ike and Tina Turner. I always thought this was a made-for-TV movie from really? when I was a kid, because I guess I saw it on TV for the first time. Yeah. It's super fucked up. It's not a pleasant watch. It's not a pleasant movie, but, like, this is such a great depiction of Tina Turner's life where you... It's so memorable to me, because I, I watched this. It played on TV, and I also rented it at, like, our local movie <laughs> rental store when I was little. And Lawrence Fishburne's acting in here... And Angela Bassett's acting is so on point. They're both very good. They're both amazing. I think it works just like on that performance level pretty well. And early on, I think it works really well as like a lifetime melodrama. <sighs> like where he's like a workaholic and she's just like kind of this like rebel who like doesn't really fit in anywhere. Like she's too right. show offy for church and she's too <laughs> like freewheeling and wants to have a good time to like really make it in the R&B industry the way that Ike Turner wants to uh, work tirelessly always on tour and then when the movie shifts to like Lawrence Fishburne nonstop beating Angela Bassett it's so hard to watch it's like a horror film out of nowhere I think it was important to have that because like she went through that and you're supposed to be uncomfortable you're supposed to like find it hard to watch and I love that it was so intense because Ike Turner is like the biggest piece of shit ever. And I think after this, after her autobiography came out and the movie came out, people were like, wow, is he really that big of a piece of shit? And like during interviews that pe- with him, you know, after the movie and after the book, he was just kind of like, I mean, I beat her and slapped her around, but like not more than like any other man would do. Like Jesus. he did not give a shit. I mean, this guy is just like Satan. It was just nice. To have him portrayed in, like, a, like a monster. Because he I was a monster. I can't believe he signed off his life rights for this. Like, he signed a contract saying it was okay to portray him that way. Because uh, he didn't think anything was wrong with it. That's nuts. It really is exploitative, though. Watching him, like, drag her by the hair, or, like, there's a rape scene in an aquarium Ugh. that's, like, really fucking hard to watch. Yeah. And it might just be, like, I'm maybe too sensitive to that kind of stuff, but, like, it was just like I was watching something very familiar, like a Lifetime-type movie, and then all of a sudden this, like horrific fucking violence. Yeah. Like, there might have been a way to portray that without having to, like, delve so deep into the bloody details. But I also had a similar problem with the Tanya Harding movie, I, Tanya, that's coming out soon. Did not see that. It hasn't really hit wide release yet. I saw it at the film fest. Uh, And I had the same problem with that, too. Like, I thought it was really exploitative in the violence and the way it's portrayed. But, like you said, it's a real-life story. Where I think if it wasn't, people would just be like, oh, like, she got roughed up a little bit. You know, because people say that shit and they think that way but it's like no like this woman like covered in fucking blood it, it just kind of shows how difficult it is because i feel like a lot of women in these like domestic abuse situations people are like oh just leave you have your resources 
I mean, she was kind of trapped. I mean, you're going to leave, and then, you know, what are you going to do with these kids? Leave and then them he with hunts an her down, and keeps showing he back up. You? Yeah. Uh, so it kind of shows, like, how brave of a move it is to, like, leave and to, like, get your shit together. I love this movie because it really, like, at the end, where she, like, she really doesn't start to do what she wants to do till she's, like, in her 40s. Right. And she fucking blows it out of the water. And that's when you think of Tina Turner, I don't think of Ike and Tina. Right. I think of What's Love Got to Do With It. I think of Private Dancer. I think of Thunderdome. And that's what she did on her own whenever she, like, was like, hey, fuck you, dude. I'm doing what I want to do. And I guess that's, like, the stuff I wish I, there was more of. I love watching Angela Bassett in this role. She's so good. And she even does, like, the, the tight shoulder shrugs with, like, the big, like, smile while she sings. Like, she's embodies Tina Turner. And she's buff as fuck in this movie. She's, like, super strong yeah, arms. Yeah, like Tina. Yeah, it's Tina nuts. Turner arms and thighs. She got them. <laughs> uh, and she also has these, like, Buddhist meditations that she does to, like, help herself yeah. through this, like, harrowing crisis she's going yeah. through the whole movie. So I kind of just wish that there was more of, like her accomplishments on her own. Yeah. But the movie's not about that. The movie's about the abuse. I think maybe because the movie was like released in 93 mm-hmm. where she had just kind of reached that more recent within those years. Yeah. So maybe if this was a movie that was made like now it would focus more on that. But I think that was like so new. How it sort of the end part is her performing with love got to do with it and then it turns into real Tina. Right. You know? And the reason we haven't mentioned Tim Capello once yet is because he's not really in this movie. Until, like, right before the credits roll. And it's the real-life footage of him playing with the real-life Tina Turner. Because he was her real-life keyboard and saxophone player for 20 years. And, I mean, she was a very sexual performer when she, like, did her own thing and her, you know, with what love got to do with it and all that kind of stuff. And so was he. So he almost, like, helped her, like, embrace the sexuality and it's kind of, like, nice seeing them perform together. Yeah, she, like, grinds on him while singing. And right. And he's, like, really good about, like, playing along with that. And He's, like, as respectful as anyone could be. Yeah. <laughs> in that scenario. Yeah, it's definitely, like, a male stripper position, but it's not, like, Magic Mike or something. He's not handling her. Right. He's just there as a prop. Yeah. For her to, like, do her stage act onto him, which I'm sure was a really big change from the way Ike Turner, like, sort of choreographed everything she was supposed to do at every moment. Right, But yeah, I don't mean a shit on the movie. It's just like, it's not super empowering to watch someone get beaten for 90 minutes. You know, like, it's It's really really rough. But as long as you're prepared for it, maybe I wasn't properly prepared. Oh, God. Well, yeah. You know, I have the autobiography, like, on paperback somewhere, but I've never, like, read it because it's like, God, I probably have to be in, like, the right mindset for that. Very intense, but good for her for, like, doing a tell-all. That was awesome. Well, if you want to read Tim Capello's thoughts on playing with her, he did write a blog post recently called Memories of Tina, where he, like, talks about their performances. I wish I had watched the uh, Thunderdome music video you told me about. Because apparently he's in that more than he's even in this uh, movie. Yeah, that's, like, his other, like, big thing is the Thunderdome video. Well, not Thunderdome video, um, for We Don't Need Another Hero. And he's, like, doing a slow, you know, like, the 80s slow motion spin while he's doing that with his saxophone during, like, the... (laughs) Oh, God, it's great. (laughs) So we've gone through all the Tim Capella movies... Yes. He's got his minute-long sax of fame in uh, Lost Boys. Uh Uh-huh. You get to see him perform a bunch as a drummer in Hearts of Fire. He makes tap dancing cool again in Tap. And then he appears for, like, a second in Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It. And that's it. Except that he has a lot more to do with her real life than he's in the movie. 
I mean, she worked with this dude for 20 years. Like, they had to definitely have, like... I would love to read the memories of Yeah, just a few paragraphs, but it's sweet. What do you think about his, like, overall career movies? Like, part of me wants to be like, oh, God, I wish he would have done more. I wish he would have done more. I know he did, like, another connection with him and Fiona. He did a Miami Vice episode. And she also played in a Miami Vice episode. Not the same one, though. Which is also very MTV. Oh, he's perfect for it. But it's kind of nice that he kind of put his mark a little bit in the movie realm as well as like the music realm. All while staying true to himself. He didn't get lost in the fame. You know, he's still doing what he wants to do. I don't know. I think if he would have done too many movies, would he still be as like nice and humble as he is now? I don't know. I enjoy the short and sweetness of his career. I think what's really missing is a documentary. Should we do a Kickstarter? Yeah, kickstart a, a Tim Capella documentary. I don't know who would direct this, but... <laughs> me! Give me money! <laughs> <laughs> There's gotta be plenty of, like, footage of him around. I'm, people love this guy. And he's very talkative in interviews. Like, yeah. Like, he will talk to you. I mean, he's talking to, like, those, like, slob-looking guys at these, like, horror conventions, and he's just, like, super enthusiastic, and they're just like, hey, Lost Boys. <laughs> you know? I mean, God. I'm sure a man who has played with Bob Dylan and Tina Turner... Probably has more stories than, like, hanging around with Corey Ham for one day, in you know? In ho- Holiday Inn hotel room. Right. Yeah. Everyone do yourself a favor. Follow this man on Facebook, on social media. He's, like, he's pretty active. That's how I found out about him being in the Ken Dolls, the porn pop thing. He was like, oh, boy, here we go. Here's some pics of me and the Ken Dolls. <laughs> just kind of like my wacky days. <laughs> it's just, like, him, like ass in the air in a thong playing on a piano it's so funny amazing like he'll just throw cool shit like that out on his facebook it's it's amazing and if you have like money laying around and you tend to direct movies uh hit us up about making a tim capella documentary (laughs) because we want to talk to this guy highly interested (laughs) or at least give us enough money to get one of those personal videos and (laughs) i uh won't be seeing you on the podcast until the year is over yeah. Our friend Peter Moran from the We Love to Watch podcast is going to sub in as a co-host for the last two episodes of the year. And we'll be back with the regular crew for the January, like, huge wrap-up of our, like, favorite <laughs> movies of the year. Um, got a lot of watching to do. Yeah. There's a I lot got, of stuff I want to see that I haven't seen. I got a lot of list-making to do. I've been it's working so slowly on this list. It's to make lists. Ugh. Because, like, sometimes, like, it changes on the daily with me, where I'm like, I like this movie more than this movie, and then the next day I look at it in a different light, and I'm like, well, actually, you know, it's hard to really, uh, but I like doing it. Yeah, it's fun, and it's, like, a good way to contextualize the year. Yes. My problem is, like, there's just so many fucking movies I enjoyed. 2017 was a better year for movies than last year, for sure, I think. And there's so many people who would say that you're crazy for saying that. Really? But I don't, I yeah. never believe that. I think it, it's more of a personal thing, like, how many movies did you see? How and are you what feeling have when you, you saw been watching? Right. Yeah. But I feel great about this year. There's a bunch of movies I really enjoyed. <laughs> yes, totally. And we'll see you in a couple weeks with those uh, special guest episodes. Bye, everybody. Bye.